Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving and ready to wrap up this Thanksgiving Day weekend. Um, today, as we begin, I want you to think to a time in your life where things, where you felt like things weren't fair, where you felt like life wasn't fair, specifically if you thought that you were following something that God wanted you to do, like you thought you were being faithful and things didn't turn out the way that you thought that they were going to. You thought you were being faithful, but it seemed like maybe God wasn't holding up his end of the deal or it felt like things just didn't turn out the way that you thought they were going to turn out. Uh, for us, this happened back in 2016. So if you don't know our story, a little bit about us, we're from Michigan. And back in 2016, we made the decision that we were going to move from Michigan down here to North Carolina. And uh, there's a few things that had to fall into place to make it happen. And it, things ended up falling into place. But one thing that kept us from pulling the trigger right away is one thing that was keeping us in Michigan is we had helped plant a church there that we really loved. It was a volunteer basis. We weren't working there or anything like that. But we really loved this church and we didn't want to leave. And we were like, you know, and we were just coming up on our one-year anniversary, and it was exciting, and we were like, you know, we don't really want to go, but, you know, maybe, maybe if we can help find a church to help plant in North Carolina, that'll be God telling us, go. So we're like, okay, let's try that. So we start looking online from Michigan for churches that were getting ready to plant, and my wife, Brittany, ends up finding this church I was looking for a kids director. So we applied from Michigan and kind of had some Zoom sessions with them from there, and all were comfortable moving forward, so we're like, okay, we're on board. Time to move. So that was the last thing in place. We packed up everything we had. We sold pretty much everything we had, fit whatever we could fit on our, in our Equinox, and left. <laughs> and it was cool. And we, were, we came down here, and we, we stayed with some family for a while. We had a little bit of family down here. And for a time, it was good. I was working in finance at the time, had never thought about this ministry thing. And so we moved down. We leased an office for me to work out of and furnished it and all this stuff. But the more we were doing with this church the more of the time that I was spent doing the other things, I kept feeling like this is just a giant waste of time. Anytime I was working, I was like, I just want to be doing stuff with the church. I don't want to be doing these other things. And so as, as kind of time progressed a little bit, I kind of got this thought of maybe this is God saying should be going into ministry. So I had this conversation with my wife. We talked it over with the pastor of that church plant and some pastor friends I had back home about what that would look like. And eventually we were like, okay, you know what? I don't even know what ministry means, if we're being honest. Uh, clearly that was never a plan, but Let's do it. Let's see what, let's go into ministry and see what that even means. And so we decided to, to walk away from the other career of working in finance. We c convinced our landlord to uh, cut our lease short, sold off on the furniture that we had just bought for a gigantic loss, but got rid of it. And we were like, okay, we're doing this thing. We started, I got it like a nine to five job just to pay the bills, but we started doing things with this church. And for a while, things were really good. We were doing events and we were meeting people and having Bible studies and things were, things were, uh, looking good for a while, and I was like, okay, we made, a, we made the right choice. But as 2016 progressed, as we got closer and closer to the end of the year, as we got closer to what we were telling people was our launch dates, things weren't really materializing. Things weren't really um, uh, taking shape and forming the way that they were supposed to be at that time. And I knew nothing about church planning at the time. I didn't know, I didn't know what th things even needed to happen, but it was just clear it wasn't actually happening. And then our launch day, what we were telling people our launch day came and went, we didn't launch, we weren't able to get off the ground. And there were some differences of beliefs that we didn't really realize until we got down here. And one thing led to another, and we kind of just had to make the decision that it was time for us to part ways with this church plant. So we had a conversation with them, told them, wish you good luck, all these things, but we're going to go our separate ways. And so here we are as we wrapped up 2016. We're in this new state. Uh, we didn't know anyone outside of family, had no friends outside of family. Um, thought we were going in ministry, walked away from a career for it, had it blow up in our face. And I remember sitting at the end of the year saying, I think I might have just ruined our lives. I think I may have just made a decision that was a completely wrong decision. 
And I think I just made a gigantic mistake. You know, it got to the point at the end of 2016, I was, pl- I was applying for things like custodial jobs at churches and maintenance jobs because I thought maybe if I can just, I didn't know any churches or any pastors down here. I thought maybe if I could just get in the building, something would happen. Didn't get a call back for a single one. And I remember thinking, what are you doing, God? Like, I thought I was being faithful in doing this. I thought this is what you wanted, and it just blew up in our face. What are you doing? Why isn't this fair? Why aren't you being fair? And I'm curious if you've ever thought that before. If you've ever had a time where you thought you were following what God wanted you to do, and it seemingly blew up in your face. And it seemed as if God wasn't being fair. And so this is what we're going to be talking about this morning. If you've ever asked the question, where are you, God? The question we're going to be talking about today is we're going to be asking this question of where is God when life's unfair? Where is God when life is unfair? If you've ever asked this before, something, some, some semblance of where are you, God, or why isn't life fair, this is what we're going to be talking about. And I think when we talk about the idea of fairness, we can easily jump to the obvious. Of course life's not fair. No one actually expects life to be fair, Right? In a, in, a, in a pretty famous uh, commencement speech that w- that's been attributed to Bill Gates, he laid out the, uh, what's become known as the 11 rules for life. And it was the, these are the things that they don't teach you in school that you need to know to be a functioning adult. And the first thing he said was, life's not fair, get used to it. And I think sometimes this is the uh, uh, mindset that we can have. Life's not fair. We know life's not fair. Get used to it. But how does God factor into that? Or what happens when we're faced with a legitimate tragedy? or we're faced with something like abuse? What happens when we're faced with these things? Are we just supposed to sit back as believers and say, life's not fair, get used to it? How does the God that we worship factor into the idea of fairness? What do we do when God's not fair? So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up with me. Today we're going to be in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 6. We're starting in verse 14. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black one in one of the seatbacks around you, and the page number for that black Bible is up on the screen. But today we're going to be looking at a story, and it's not the typical story that you would um, probably choose to go to to study in your morning quiet time. You know, we're coming out of Thanksgiving weekend, day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday. If you're not a Black Friday shopper, this probably isn't the verses, the, the verses that you're going to get up with you, your belly full of turkey and get your coffee and the leaves are changing. This is like perfect weather to me. It's crisp and cool outside. Probably not grabbing your coffee, flipping through, looking for a word from the Lord and looking into Mark and looking at the headings and saying, hmm. John the Baptist beheaded. <laughs> like, it's, this, is not the, this is not the typical story you go to to feel good, but this is where we're going today, so here we go. Uh, but what we're going to be doing is we're looking at a story that is purely unfair. We're looking at a story that is purely unfair, that at a, on a surface reading, it can almost seem as if God is absent. And so what we're not going to do is we're not going to read this story pick out a few life lessons from it. How can, how can this apply to us today and wrap it up in a nice little bow? But instead, we're going to look at this story that is purely unfair, and we're going to look at how we, how, or how we can see God in the story. Where is the God that we worship? How does he factor into a story that on a surface reading can seem almost as if he's absent? So we're going to be jumping in starting in verse 14 today, but I'm actually going to rewind two verses just to recap from what we talked about last week. So last week, uh, we covered Jesus commissioning the 12. So at the end of the verses that we covered last week, the, the 12 were going out, they were performing, uh, they were uh, uh, preaching in Jesus' name. Jesus' name was becoming known. They were preaching that people should repent. And so starting in verse 12, which we covered last week, we're going to rewind two verses. It says this just to give us a little bit of context. It says, so they went out and preached, they being the 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. So they're they're going out, they're doing doing this work in Jesus' name, and Jesus' name is becoming known, 
And so now here we pick up in verse 14. It says, King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet, like, the, like, like one of the prophets from long ago. So this name of Jesus is becoming known, and they're trying to figure out who is this Jesus person, and they give three options. It might be John the Baptist, it might be Elijah, or it might just be another prophet. So if we look at these three options, we can look at them one by one. We can look at the idea that this is John the Baptist. Now, we know, if you've been with us from the beginning of the book of Mark, is John the Baptist is the one who baptized Jesus. So we know it can't be John the Baptist because there were two separate humans existing at the same time, but they didn't know this, so they thought it could be John the Baptist, but we know that it's not. The second option they give is Elijah. This, this, um, this uh, option comes from the book of 2 Kings where the prophet Elijah doesn't actually die, but he's taken up to heaven alive. And then if we look in the book of Malachi, in Malachi 4-5, one of the minor prophets, it says that the Lord is going to send the prophet Elijah before the day of the Lord comes. So they're thinking this could be the prophecy of Elijah being fulfilled and Elijah returning. Or the third option they give is, it's just another prophet. Been a long line of prophets, another one in a long line of prophets. So they're not sure who this Jesus person is. As we continue in verse 16, we see Herod give his opinion. It says, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. So in, in Jewish thinking, resurrection would always, be, would always come before judgment. So him saying that John the Baptist has been raised, he's not just saying, hey, I think he's back, but he's almost, he's almost saying, I think John, this might be John the Baptist coming back to exact revenge on me, almost coming back to haunt me, kind of. And so he's, he's, he's worried that this is John returning from, resurrected, returning to get judgment on him. And what verse 16 is, is it's kind of a foreshadowing to the next chunk of verses we're going to read. So we just found out, John the Baptist has been executed. John the Baptist was killed. And now as we move into verse 17, we're going to kind of rewind back in time a little bit and find out how he was killed. So we continue in verse 17. It says, For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So these are the first details that we get of Herod's family tree. And, it's, and his, his kind of family tree is important to the story. And admittedly, it's a little confusing because it goes in directions that family trees really shouldn't go. And I'll, 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 to, to put us all on the same page here, I created a family tree for the Herodian family. So we can kind of all understand where we're at here. So at the beginning or at the top is Herod the Great. The Herod we're talking about here is actually Herod Antipas. He's one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who uh, ruled when Jesus was born, when Jesus was a baby. So Herod the Great had some sons. These are five of them. There's actually a couple more, but they're irrelevant to the story, and I ran out of space. So <laughs> these are the five. So you can go ahead to the next one. So Herod executes two of his sons, has two of his sons executed, as you do. You go on to the next one. Other son kills his father. Okay, go ahead to the next one. Then he's executed for killing his father. So we got a big chunk of the family out of the way. So go ahead to the next one. This son, obviously before he died, but he had a daughter named Herodias. Go ahead to the next slide. She marries her uncle Philip, or Philip marries his niece Herodias. Already, you know, you don't, you don't want your family tree going backwards, so not good. <laughs> they have a daughter named Salome. Okay, then go ahead to the last slide. Then our Herod, Herod Antipas, marries his brother's wife slash niece, which in effect makes him the stepfather to his I think it would be great-niece. Uh, so it's like his, his, his brother-in-law's brother-in-law niece is now his wife, and his, 
It's confusing, all right? And this is where we land. So already, not the greatest situation. And so what we have here is we had John had been speaking out against their marriage, his marriage, his, his marriage to Herodias, because it went against Jewish law. Multiple times in Leviticus, it talks about uh, not uh, it being against the law to marry or to sleep with your brother's wife. Clearly, that's what's happening here. So John had been speaking out against their marriage because it went against the law. So we're going to continue in verse 19 as we see what happens from there. It says, so Herodias, his wife, he held a grudge against him, held a grudge against John, and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. So Herodias, the, the Herod's wife, wanted John killed, but Herod feared him, so the compromise was to imprison him. If, he, if he's imprisoned, he can't be speaking out against their marriage anymore, but also if he's imprisoned, kind of protects him from her, protects him from Herod's own wife. So kind of kill two birds with one stone, we imprison John the Baptist, we go from there. Then we continue in uh, verse uh, 21. It says, An opportune time came on his birthday, on Herod's birthday, when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So if we take a pause here, and we can look at how... Uh, how kind of awful what we just read is. So Salome, the daughter, she would have likely been about 14 or 15 years old at the time. So what's happening here is her mother is sending her in to, to dance for her uh, stepfather and other men in hopes that he'll be pleased with it enough to grant her, almost like grant her a wish, but grant her whatever she wants. And so this is a mother using her daughter purely as an object just for her own gain and sadly, it works. It works. Herod is, is pleased with it. He, he enjoys it, and the other men do, so he offers as a reward, offers to give her whatever she wants, up to half the kingdom. Then if we continue in verse 24, we see what she asks for. So she went out and, and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. And once she heard to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. So what's interesting here is there's no implication that this request shocked the daughter. There's no implication that there's any hesitation. In fact, it even appears that she is the one who added the detail of having his head brought on a platter, which just shows us how much of, a, how much of an effect the mother had on the daughter. And if we keep reading, if, as we close out this section, and, uh, starting in verse 26, we, we see how Herod responded. It says, although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring him John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed the corpse and placed it in the tomb. So realize how grim what's, what's going on here is. This is John who's speaking. He's, he, in, in essence, he's doing nothing wrong. He was, speaking, he was just speaking to the law, speaking to um, Herod about the law he was breaking. He's imprisoned. So in prison, he can't speak out against it anymore. He's basically silenced. But even though he's already silenced, he's then executed for sitting in prison. And then that's the end. That's the end of the story. If we were to continue reading in the next few verses, which we'll pick up with next time, we see that um, we move right into the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and we're out of this story. And that's the end. So what do we do with this? 
What do we do with this? This is one of many stories where someone is completely faithful and loses their life over it. Why does God seem absent here? What are we supposed to do with this? You know, as we, if you've been with us through the book of Mark, we've been seeing Jesus heal the sick. We've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him perform all these miracles. Where is he here? Why doesn't he stop this? Why is John seemingly left to rot in prison? Why is John killed for doing nothing wrong? Where was God in this situation? And I'm curious if you've ever asked the same thing. If you've ever had something in your life where you've asked the same thing, if you've questioned, where are you, God? And this is the first thing I want us to know this morning. If you've ever experienced that, if you've ever asked that question, where are you, God? Or if you've ever questioned God, the first thing I think it's important for us to realize this morning is that questioning God doesn't equal a lack of faith. Questioning God doesn't translate to a lack of faith. Being a faithful follower of Jesus doesn't mean that we're commanded to sit back, be impervious to pain, act like nothing affects us, accept things as they come, and just pretend like everything rolls off our shoulder. See, we read stories like this, and we don't want to be in the John the Baptist story, right? I think we have a tendency to put ourselves in biblical stories. We read this, and I don't want to be in this story. Now, I want to be in, I want to be in the Daniel and the lion's den story, right? I want to be in the fiery furnace story. I want to face difficulty, yeah. I want to face challenges for Jesus, but I want to come out completely unscathed. I want, I want God to come through in ways that I'm not hurt. I want to face difficulty and look like things are going to be tough, but I want God to come through in ways that I have a happy ending and things are great. But what happens when that's not our story? What happens when we're left with a story like this and it it doesn't have, at at least at this time, doesn't seem to have a happy ending, at least not that we can see? Then what do we do with that? What do we do? What what happens when we question God? You know, back in uh, back in 2019, um, we went through what was probably, probably one of the worst years that we've experienced. Uh, definitely probably the worst year of our marriage, but one of the worst years we've experienced in our lives. And there's, it's, there's a number of things that kind of culminate together, but the kind of, the thing that kind of did everything in is we had, a, we had a foster child that we were working towards adoption with, and it fell through, and without going into details, it fell through in a pretty horrible way. And I remember questioning God about this, thinking, God, what are you doing? How is this part of your plan? How is this, how is anything good coming from this? But what would happen is I would question God and that I'd immediately feel guilty for it. I would question God saying, I I don't get it. I don't get, especially when kids are involved, I don't get it. I don't get how this could be something that, uh, I don't get how this could be part of your plan. But then I would immediately feel guilt on top of that thinking, I must just not be a good enough Christian. I must not be faithful enough. If I have these questions, it must mean that I don't understand God enough, that I'm not following God faithfully enough. And so I'd, I'd, be, I'd be upset, I'd be questioning God, then I have the guilt packed on top of it, and it just became a spiral that was impossible to get out of, and this is something that I wish I would have realized then. That questioning God in and of itself doesn't mean that you have a lack of faith. We can't read the Bible in its entirety and come to this conclusion because there's multiple times in Scripture where people faithfully question God. And I'll give you a few examples. These will be up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. This is just a couple of the many examples that are in the Bible. If we look to the prophets, if we look in the book of Habakkuk in the, in the Old Testament, if we look at the, uh, the, beginning of the, be, the beginning of the book, this is him crying out to God. He says this, he says, How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? He's crying out to God, questioning, saying, I don't understand. I don't understand the plan. If we look into the New Testament, 
We can look in the book of Matthew. We can look at Jesus himself as he is on the cross. One of the final things he says in Matthew 27, says about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Questioning God doesn't equal a lack of faith. But the manner in which we question God can reveal our unfaithfulness. And what I mean by that is, are we questioning God because we truly don't understand and we want to understand? Or are we questioning God because my way's better? Am I questioning God because, God, you should be doing it this way, not your way, you should be doing it my way? Or am I questioning God saying, I, I, I understand that you're great, I understand you have a plan, I just want to see it, I don't understand. If we want an example of what it looks like to faithfully question God, we can look in the Psalms. There's, there's many examples, in, just in the book of Psalms alone, of the psalmists questioning God, but this, this example, I think, really illustrates it for us. If we look at Psalm 22, the first couple verses, the psalmist is crying out to God, saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The same words that Jesus said on the cross. Why are you so far from my deliverance and my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. He's crying out to God. Crying out to God, questioning God. But then if we look to the next few verses, he continues with words of praise. In verse three, he says, but you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. See, he questions God. The psalmist questions God, but then he praises him for his greatness and for the times that he's come through in the past. This is what it looks like to faithfully question God. This is what it looks like to question God, not in a way of, I know better than you, but to question in a way of saying, I don't understand. I want to understand your way. See, God knows your struggles. He knows your thoughts. He knows your hearts. He knows your questions. So keeping them from him doesn't do any good. God's not afraid of your questions. So bring them to him. Bring them to him. Bring your questions to God. But the fact of the matter is, although we can question God, many of us have, I have, we don't always get an answer we want. Don't always get an answer in our timing, don't always get an answer that makes sense to us. Sometimes it can feel as if we don't get an answer whatsoever. It can feel like our questions are falling on deaf ears, and there are times it can even seem like God doesn't even care. It can seem like God isn't giving us a response, and we can be left saying, God, why aren't you responding to me? Why aren't you answering these questions? And it, it makes me think of this. It makes me think of my two-year-old son. So we have a two-year-old. His name is Theodore, the best. Uh, and one of the things that, one of his favorite things to do in the world is he loves to go on walks. We go on walks all the time. We started this, I actually look back because I keep track of this in like, a, in like a walking running app to see how far we go. We, st we started tracking it back in July of 2020. So it must have been middle of COVID. We were bored and everything was shut down. So we just started walking. And at that time, we'd walk, he'd be in a stroller. And every morning, we'd go out for a walk and uh, I would track how far we'd go and we'd try and go further. And as time went on, we just started doing this like almost every day if the weather's good. We'd go on walks. Now, obviously, he's walking on his own. He's not in the stroller anymore, but still all the time, every time we go out the front door, he wants to go for a walk. And I even, like, I, I even um, put together how much we've, we've walked since July of 2020, if you're curious, because this was the coolest thing I came across. Since July of 2020 till now, we've walked almost 500 miles together. Isn't that crazy? So, uh, now, if, if you're wondering, the state of North Carolina is a little over 500 miles long. So we've almost walked the entire state together, and he's two. One day we're going to walk to the moon. Um, but, but we love going on walks. It's a lot of fun. But the reality is, sometimes when we're going outside, we're not going on a walk. 
Sometimes we're getting in the car. Sometimes we actually have like a life to live and things to do. But he's two, and he doesn't always understand that. So sometimes we'll go out the front door, and we'll be getting things in the car, and he'll start like inching his way to the sidewalk. And he'll kind of looking back like, ready, here we go. There goes walking time. And sometimes we have to be like, sorry, buddy, we got to get in the car. And he, sometimes he gets a little bummed because he doesn't understand what we're doing. But the reality is, a lot of times we're getting in the car, we're doing something he likes a lot more than going on a walk. We're going to grandma and grandpa's house, which he loves to do, or going to see your cousins, or going to a friend's house, or these things that he's going to want to do more than going on a walk, but he's two, and he doesn't see that full picture. He doesn't actually see what's going on. And it's a silly example, but this is how we can be with God sometimes, where we can look at the immediate and not understand the full plan, but not understand that God has our best interest in mind. And in times like this, and in times like when I've experienced this, this is what I want us to remember, is that God sees the full picture. God sees the full picture. God can see the outcome of a situation even when we can't. God can see the, the, the good, the potential good that can come from a situation even when we can't. God can see the outcome of our situation even when we're right in the middle of it and we don't understand where things are going. And this is a reality I wish I would have seen back in 2016. When I was questioning God over whether we should have uh, moved down to North Carolina, when I was questioning God saying, I thought you said go into ministry and it blew up in our face. I don't understand what's going on here. When I was questioning God about these things, I wish I could have seen that he could see the full picture when I couldn't. Because what ended up happening there? 2016 came to a wrap. It was not the best end of the year. 2016 started, or 2017 started, and I just started Googling church plants near me. I thought, I don't know what ministry even means, but maybe if I can just go to something. Like, we just needed a church home at that point. So I started Googling church plants near me. Churches starting near me. Churches launching in 2017. Church plants, Raleigh. New churches that are coming in Raleigh. <laughs> Any combination of these keywords I could find. And I was getting church after church of churches that had uh, closed their doors or never, never got off the ground, church plants that never really started, or things that, pages that hadn't been posted on in a year or many months, I couldn't tell if they were even in existence. And I was filtering through these and sifting through, and I came across one church, and they had posted something recently. And I thought, great, check, check one, you know, we're, we're off to a good start. And I started looking, and they said, we're launching in April 2017, so that would have been in about four months. I was like, oh, okay, this is a real thing. So I clicked on their website, I'm looking through, look at their beliefs, and you know what? Their beliefs were the exact same as every other church's website beliefs. So I was like, they're not crazy, okay. They're, at least they don't look like it. And so I was looking through it, and I emailed them just basically saying, hey, we're new to the area, we're just looking for a church plant to be a part of. Can we come? Like, it was pretty much as that. And I got an email back saying, hey, love to get together with and grab a cup of coffee, or if you want, you, can come you and your wife can come over for dinner tomorrow night. I was like, dinner? I don't even know you. Like... <laughs> It's like strike one, I don't know. That's, <laughs> um, no, we, we were very appreciative. And so we went, we went over for dinner and kind of explained the situation. I was like, I, 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 I feel like we should be doing this ministry thing and I don't even know what ministry means if I'm being honest. So can we just be a part of this and come? And they're like, yeah, come back Sunday and we uh, meet in our town home and people come and we're like, I was like, that sounds weird, but okay. <laughs> And so we came back Sunday, and those couches we were sitting on were gone, and there was a bunch of chairs sitting out, and there was like 20 people there, and someone playing an acoustic guitar, and lyrics up on the screens, and I was like, this is so weird. Like, this is nothing like anything I'd ever been a part of. This is a church and a house. And, but you know what? I was like, this is, I asked for something, and so we're, here's something. 
And so I started coming. Everyone was, everyone was super kind and great and welcomed us in. And if you, haven't, if you haven't connected the dots yet, this church is New City right here. <laughs> and, um, and here we are four years later, and it's been great. But if I had it my way, none of that would have happened. If I had it my way, what would have happened? Probably we would have stayed with the other church plant. We would have stuck with them, and, and what ended up happening is eventually they did end up launching. They existed for a handful of months, and then they shut their doors, and they kind of moved out of state. And if I had it my way, we probably would have stayed with them, would have stayed through kind of shutting our doors, and we would have been far enough in to where it probably would have been a big enough blow that I could see myself saying, you know what, forget this. This whole minute, this clearly was a mistake, this far in and have it blow up. Clearly, this wasn't what God wanted us to do. I'm done with this thing. But God saw the full picture when I couldn't. God saw the full picture when I could only see the immediate. But the fact of the matter is, even though it worked out in our case, you know, obviously the story's not over, we're still living here and stuff, but we can look back and see God moving now. We can look back at the kind of events that transpired and I can say like, oh, okay, I see what God was doing. This makes sense now. But the fact of the matter is that's not always how it works out. It's not always how it works out. We don't always kind of get the ending to a story and we can't always look back and say, oh, I see God moving here, 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 and here, and this is how it ended. Sometimes it just seems like we're stuck in the middle of something and we have no way out and this isn't fair. So I asked at the beginning of this message, what do we do when life's unfair? What do we do when God's not fair? What do we do when we want fair and we don't understand God's plan? And this is what I want us to see here. It's that we don't want fair. We don't want fair. I don't want fair. We can think we want fair all we want, but we don't want, a God, we don't want God to be fair. Fair is God not sending his son. Fair is God not offering salvation. Fair is judgment. The fact of the matter is we drop the ball time and time again. I do. I drop the ball time and time, day in and day out, every day, all the time, and he still forgives. He offers forgiveness when it's not deserved. He offers forgiveness when it's not earned. He offers forgiveness when we did nothing to deserve it. And this is, the, this is the kind of main idea I want us to walk away with today as we read passages like this, just one of the many passages like this in the Bible, and we struggle with what do we do when we don't see God at work? What do we do when God doesn't seem fair? What do we do when, when things don't seem to go the way that they should? This is what I want us to remember. We might want things to be fair. We might think that we want fair, but in reality, we don't. We want mercy. But the fact of the matter is, mercy isn't fair. Mercy isn't fair. Mercy is so much greater than fairness. And if we're being honest, we don't want God to be fair. We don't want God to be fair, and thank God he's not. Thank God we don't worship a fair God, because he's not fair. He's better than fair. He's merciful. He's loving. He's forgiving. He offers forgiveness and offers mercy time and time again. And we can see this all throughout scripture. If we look in the book of Romans, if we look in the book of Romans in Romans 6.23, it kind of lays this out perfectly for us. It says, for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Death is fair. Judgment is fair. Condemnation is fair. Mercy isn't fair. Jesus coming and giving his life for you and me when it's not deserved, when we did nothing to earn it, isn't fair. It's mercy. It's grace. It's forgiveness. See, God offers forgiveness time and time again, and all he asks is for you and for me and for us to follow him and repent and confess. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. 
we're going we're gonna to take some time right here in the middle of service to have a time of confession. So I'm going to invite the band up. You guys can come on up. As we close this morning, we're going to do something that if you're new with us, we do this every week here at New City. And what we do is we create some time in the middle of our service to go before God and confess the areas where I've fallen short. Confess the areas where you've fallen short. Because what we know is he always responds to repentance with forgiveness 100% of the time. And so what we're going to do here in a moment, just silently, quietly to yourself, just between you and God, I encourage you to take a few moments, go before God, and confess the areas you've fallen short. Not generalities, not, God, I know I'm a sinner, but where specifically have you dropped the ball? And the good news is we worship, we worship a God who, if you're here every week, if you do this every week, we don't worship a God that says, come on, again? You said this last week. I thought you had this taken care of. How often are you going to confess the same thing? We don't worship a disappointed father, but we worship a God who says, I forgive. We worship a God who says, I have grace on you. No matter how often you confess the same thing, I have grace on you and I forgive. And all he asks for you and for me to do is to come to him, be honest, and confess. So take a few moments, just quietly to yourself, silently to yourself, go before God and confess. And then I'll bring us back together in prayer in a moment.